Chapter 12 of Superwomen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Superwomen by Albert Payson Terhune. Chapter 12 Lady Hamilton, patron saint of dime novel heroines. She was the mother of Gertrude the governess the grand dame of bertha the beautiful sewing-machine girl the earliest ancestorette of ione the pride of the mill she was the impossibility that made possible the brain daughters of laura jean she was the patron saint of all the dime novel heroines she was the model consciously or otherwise probably otherwise of all their authors because at a period when such things were undreamed of even in fiction she rose from nursemaid to title even in the books and plays of that age the born serving wench did not marry the heir in the highest literary flights bridget's crowning reward was to wed luke the gamekeeper and become landlady of the bibulous goat or the doodlethorpe arms goldsmith was eyed askance for even making the heroine of she stoops to conquer pose momentarily as a lady's maid having thus tried to show how impossible was the happening let me work up by degrees to the happening itself she was a lancashire lass emma lyon by name in mature years she dropped the lion and called herself emma hart no one knows why Lion was not her name, neither was Hart for that matter. In fact, she had no name, her careless parents having failed to supply her with the legal right to one. Her father was a rural farmhand. He died while Emma was a baby. Her mother, an inn-servant, moved later to Hawarden, and there a Mrs. Thomas hired Emma as nursemaid. This was in 1777 emma was thirteen she had already learned to read a rare accomplishment in those days for the nameless brat of an inn drudge and as nursemaid she greedily picked up stray morsels of her little charge's education as well as the manners and language of her employers she learned as quickly as a chinaman there is a hiatus in the records after emma had served a year or so in the thomas family one biographer bridges the gap with a line of asterisks asterisks in biographies as well as in sex problem fiction may indicate either a lapse of time or a lapse of morals emma reappeared from the asterisk cloud in london where she was nursemaid in the house of a dr budd one of the physicians at st bartholomew's hospital dr budd's housemaid at that time by the way later became a drury lane star under the name of mrs powell and in that bright after day she and the even more apotheosized emma renewed their below stairs friendship for some reason emma left dr budd's service rather suddenly and found a job as helper in the shop of a st james market mercer she was sixteen and she was gloriously beautiful her figure was superb already she had a subtle charm of her own which drew to her feet crowds of footmen 
shop-boys, apprentices, and such small deer. There is no record that they, one and all, were sent away disconsolate. During her brief career as helper to the St. James Market Mercer, Emma chanced to attract the notice of a woman of quality who one day entered the shop and forthwith she was hired as lady's maid the girl had picked up a smattering of education she had scraped from her pink tongue the rough lancashire burr she had learned to speak correctly to ape the behaviour of the solid folk whose servant she had been now from her new employer she was to learn at first hand how people in the world of fashion comported themselves and chameleon-like she took on the color of her gay surroundings. Soon she could lisp such choice and fashionable expletives as scrape me raw and oh lay me bleeding, and could talk and walk and posture as did her mistress. Trashy novels by the dozen fell into her hands from her mistress's table. Emma devoured them gluttonously and absorbed their precepts as the human system absorbs alcohol fumes. Please don't for one moment get the idea that there was anything profitable to a young girl in the novels of the latter 18th century. Perhaps you have in mind such dreary, sterling works as Pamela, Clarissa Harlowe, Sir Charles Grandison, and others that were crammed into your miserably protesting brain in the literature courses. Those were the rare, the very rare exceptions to a large and lurid list which included such choice classics as Moll Flanders, Roxana, both of them by the same Defoe who wrote Robinson Crusoe, and whose other novels would send a present-day publisher to State's Prison, Peregrine Pickle, Fanny Hill, The Delicate Distress, Roderick Random, and the rest of a rank-flavored multitude. Emma reveled in the joys of the local circulating library, too, one of those places that loaned books of a sort to cause even the kindly Sheridan to thunder his famous dictum. A circulating library in a town is an evergreen tree of diabolical knowledge. It blossoms through the year, and, depend on't, they who are so fond of handling the leaves will long for the fruit at last. Much reading filled Emma with wonderful new ideas of life. Incidentally, it made her neglect her work, and she was discharged. Her next step was to become barmaid in a tavern. While she was there, a young admirer of hers was seized by the Navy press gang. Emma went to the captain of the ship to beg for her swain's release. The captain was John Willett Payne, afterward a rear admiral, Payne granted the lovely girl's plea. He not only gave her what she asked, but his own admiration as well. Her story as a heart-winner had begun. In fiction, the gallant captain would soon have tired of his lively sweetheart and cast her aside, but Emma was not a lowly sweetheart. She was a superwoman. She showed how much stranger than fiction truth may be by deserting pain for a richer man. First, however, she had wheedled the captain into hiring tutors and music masters for her, and she profited vastly by their teachings. 
her new flame was a sporting baronet sir harry featherstonhaugh of up park sussex sir harry was an all-around athlete and a reckless horseman he taught emma to ride a beggar on horseback and she became the most daring equestrienne of the century he taught her to spend money too and so splendidly did she learn her lesson that inside of a year sir harry was bankrupt perhaps all rats do not leave a sinking ship but for very good reasons one never hears anything further of the rats that don't the rat that wishes to continue his career wastes no time in joining the exodus and emma lyon did not disdain to take example from the humble rodent there seemed no good reason for remaining longer at the side of the bankrupt baronet to add to his cares and expenses so with womanly consideration she left him she was alone in the world once more without a shilling or a friend equipped with education accomplishments wondrous beauty and charm but with no immediate market for those commodities it was the black hour that comes least once into the life of every adventuress and in this time of need she fell in with a beauty culture quack graham by name graham had devised a rejuvenation medicine from dr faustus down the world has feverishly piteously seized on every nostrum advertised as a means of exchanging age for youth and he vowed that it would make its users not only young again but maddeningly beautiful as an example of after using graham exhibited emma lyon who he said had once been old and ugly and who by a course of his elixir had become youthful and glorious he called his medicine megalanthropogenesis women who heard his lecture took one look at emma and then bought out graham's ready supply of the stuff the charlatan was an artist in gaining his effects as witness a report of the exhibition in which emma posed he had contrived a bed of apollo or celestial bed on which in a delicately colored light this exquisitely beautiful woman nearly naked was gradually unveiled to soft soft music as hygeia goddess of health presumably no effort was made by any eighteenth-century comstock to suppress this show and all london flocked and thronged and jostled to behold it apart from the normal crowd of idlers came painters and sculptors to gaze in delight on the perfect face and form revealed through the shimmer of rose-colored light and foremost of these artists was a freakish genius toward whom was slowly creeping the insanity that a few years later was to claim him and whose stealthy approach he was even then watching with horror he was george romney who with sir joshua reynolds divided the homage of england's art world romney had come to stare at emma he remained to worship he engaged her as his model and soon or late painted no less than thirty-nine pictures of her i call her the divine lady he once wrote for i think she is superior to all womankind 
the black hour was past emma lyon's fortune and fame were secure thanks to romney she was the best advertised beauty on earth conquests came thick and fast not treading on one another's heels but racing abreast soon out of the ruck and forging far ahead appeared charles francis greville wit art connoisseur and nephew and heir of the famed antiquary diplomat sir william hamilton greville cut out all rivals romney among the rest and won emma for his own theirs was an odd love affair for here too emma gave full rein to her craving for education and she showed for the first time just why she was so eager to be highly educated it was not for mere learning's sake but to enhance the charm that gave her a hold over men she cared nothing for any but the showy accomplishments she already had a fair groundwork in english and ordinary school studies she made greville get her the best teachers in singing in dancing in acting perhaps she looked forward to a stage triumph but more likely to outshining the colorless bread-and-butter women of her day never did pupil better repay the pains of her teachers her voice presently rivaled that of many a prima donna her dancing was a delight it was she who conceived the celebrated shawl dance that was the rage throughout europe for years thereafter and that still is used in very slightly modified form by premiere danseuse but acting was emma's forte says a contemporary writer with a common piece of stuff she could so arrange and clothe herself as to offer the most appropriate representations of a jewess a roman matron a helen penelope or aspasia no character seemed foreign to her and the grace she was in the habit of displaying under such representations excited the admiration of all who were fortunate enough to be present on such occasions siddons could not surpass the grandeur of her style or o'neill be more melting in the utterance of deep pathos in this heyday of her prosperity emma hunted up her aged and disreputable mother bestowed on her the name mrs cadogan and settled a rich pension on her at about the same time too emma bade a cheery farewell to the serviceable name of lyon and took to calling herself emma hart then greville went broke in his new-found poverty he hit on a plan of life foreign to all his old ideas he decided to ask his rich old uncle sir william hamilton to pay his debts and settle a little annuity on him with his sum as a means of livelihood he intended to marry emma and with her and their three children settle down in some cheap suburb how this appealed to emma history forgets to say judging by both past and future it is not unjust to suppose that she may have been making ready once more to emulate the ship deserting rat but this time she did not need to the ship was about to desert her for a consideration greville full of his new hopes went to sir william hamilton and laid the plan before him 
his nephew's derelictions from the straight and narrow path had long distressed the virtuous old diplomat and in greville's financial troubles sir william thought he saw a fine chance to break off his nephew's discreditable affair with emma he offered to set greville on his feet again if that luckless youth would drop emma's acquaintance the enamoured greville refused sir william insisted raising his offer of financial aid and pointing out with tearful eloquence the family disgrace that a marriage to a woman of emma's dissolute character must cause it was all quite like a scene from a modern problem play but fate her tongue in her cheek was preparing to put a twist on the end of the scene worthy of the most cynical french vaudeville writer greville resented his uncle's rash judgment of his adored emma and begged him to come and see her for himself hoping that emma's wonder charm might soften the old man's virtue-encrusted heart reluctantly sir william consented to one brief interview with the wicked siren at sight of emma sir william's heart melted to mushiness he fell crazily in love with the woman he had come to dispossess there was another long and stormy scene between uncle and nephew after which greville for an enormous lump sum transferred to sir william hamilton all right and title and goodwill to the adorable emma hart and sir william and emma departed thence arm in arm leaving greville a sadder but a richer man what became of the three children i don't know by the way emma had taught them to call her aunt not mother will you let me quote a deadly dry line or two from an encyclopedia to prove to you how important a personage sir william was and how true is the axiom about no fool like an old fool hamilton sir william british diplomatist and antiquary seventeen thirty to eighteen o three student of art philosophy and literature from seventeen sixty four to eighteen hundred english ambassador to the court of naples trustee of british museum fellow of the royal society vice-president of the society of antiquaries distinguished member of the dilettante club author of several books sir joshua reynolds his intimate friend painted his portrait which hangs in the national gallery sir william who was home on leave of absence when he met emma took her back with him to italy but before they sailed she had prevailed on him to marry her it was easy he was old the marriage was kept secret until in seventeen ninety one she led her husband back to england on another leave of absence and up to the altar of st george's church where on september sixth of that year they were married all over again this time with every atom of publicity emma could compass she was then twenty-seven her husband was sixty-one in state they returned to the court of naples the most corrupt licentious false utterly abominable court in all europe if you will glance at the annals of the courts of that period you will find this statement is as true as it is sweeping on her earlier visit 
as the supposed brevet bride of the ambassador emma had been warmly received by marie caroline queen of naples and sister to marie antoinette of france emma and marie caroline were kindred spirits which is perhaps the unkindest thing i could say about either of them and they quickly formed a lasting friendship for each other emma was glad to get back to naples apart from her marriage her visit to england had not been a success a certain element in london society attracted by her beauty her voice and her talent as an actress had taken her up but queen charlotte had refused her a presentation at the british court and the more reputable element of the nobility had followed royal example and given her a wide berth english society under george the third was severely respectable at least in the matter of externals a quality it was soon to mislay under george the fourth hence emma's joy at returning to a court where respectability was a term to be found only in the dictionary the king of naples was a fool his wife was the little kingdom's ruler emma lady hamilton became her chief adviser writes one historian it is not too much to say of these two women that for years they wielded the destinies of naples and seriously affected the character of the wars that ended with the peace of europe in eighteen fifteen when both were dead both were endowed with powers of mind far above the average of their sex both exhibited energy and understanding that inspired them to bold and decisive if not always laudable deeds both were as remarkable for their personal beauty as for their self-reliance their knowledge of men and their determination to make the most of their information to say that marie caroline loved lady hamilton is to misstate a fact there was no love in the royal composition but her ungovernable and undying hatred of the french inclined her no doubt in the first instance toward the wife of the english ambassador and the subsequent devotion of the favorite secured an attachment that is confessed and reiterated through whole pages of a vehement and overstrained correspondence naples just then was between two fires there was fear of a french invasion which arrived on schedule time and there was also danger that england would ruin neapolitan commerce emma's white hands were at once plunged wrist deep into the political dough and a sorry mess she proceeded to make of it for example the king of spain wrote a confidential letter to his brother the king of naples accusing the english government of all sorts of public and private crimes and telling of spain's secret alliance with france the king showed it to his wife who in turn showed it to lady hamilton emma stole and secretly sent the letter to the british cabinet the result was a bloody war between england and spain about two years after emma's marriage an english warship the agamemnon touched at naples and her captain called to pay his respects to the british ambassador and to deliver a letter from the admiral of the mediterranean fleet after a few minutes talk with the captain sir william insisted that the latter should meet lady hamilton 
he bustled into the drawing-room to prepare emma for the visitor's arrival saying excitedly to her i am bringing you a little man who cannot boast of being very handsome but who i pronounce will one day astonish the world i know it from the very words of conversation i have had with him on the heels of sir william's announcement the little man came into the room at first glance he scarcely seemed to justify hamilton's enthusiasm he was clad in a full-laced uniform his lank unpowdered hair was tied in a stiff hessian queue of extraordinary length old-fashioned flaring waistcoat flaps added to the general oddity of his figure sir william introduced him as captain horatio nelson lady hamilton lavished on the queer guest no especial cordiality it is not known that she gave him a second thought nelson little more impressed by the superwoman wrote to his wife in england an account of the call saying of lady hamilton whose story of course he and everybody knew she is a young woman of amiable manners who does honor to the station to which she has been raised yet nelson had unwittingly met the woman who was to tarnish the pure glory of his fame and emma had met the man but for whom she would to-day be forgotten so little does fate forecast her dramas that at the first meeting neither of the two immortal lovers seems to have felt any attraction for the other not for five busy years did nelson and emma hamilton see each other again then nelson came back to naples this time in triumph a world-renowned hero the champion of the seas britain's idol he had become an admiral a peer of england a scourge of his country's foes back to naples he came part of him not all for victorious warfare had set cruel marks on him he had left his right eye at calvi in seventeen ninety four and his right arm at tenerife in seventeen ninety seven he was more odd-looking than ever but he was an acclaimed hero and naples in general and emma hamilton in particular welcomed him with rapture he was in search of the french fleet and he wanted the king of naples to let him reprovision his ships in the neapolitan harbor now france and naples just then happened to be at peace and by their treaty no more than two english warships at a time could enter any neapolitan or sicilian port the king's council declared the treaty must stand lady hamilton decided otherwise she used all her power with the queen to have the treaty set aside as a result marie caroline issued an order directing all governors of the two sicilies to water victual and aid nelson's fleet this order made it possible for nelson to go forth reprovisioned and to crush the french in the battle of the nile in the first rumor of this battle that reached naples nelson was reported killed soon afterward he appeared alive and well in the harbor here is his letter to his wife telling how lady hamilton received him on his return nelson by the way had been married for nearly twelve years 
he and his wife were devoted to each other judging from this letter he was lamentably ignorant of women or was incredibly sure of lady nelson's love and trust or else his courage was greater than that of mortal husband he wrote sir william and lady hamilton came out to sea to meet me they my most respectable friends had nearly been laid up and seriously ill first from anxiety and then from joy it was imprudently told lady hamilton in a moment that i was alive and the effect was like a shot she fell apparently dead and is not yet perfectly recovered from severe bruises alongside came my honored friends the scene in the boat was terribly affecting up flew her ladyship and exclaiming oh god is it possible she fell into my arms more dead than alive tears however soon set matters to rights when alongside came the king i hope some day to have the pleasure of introducing you to lady hamilton she is one of the very best women in the world she is an honor to her sex her kindness with sir williams to me is more than i can express i am in their house and i may tell you it required all the kindness of my friends to set me up lady hamilton intends writing to you may god almighty bless you and give us in due time a happy meeting france sought revenge for the help given to nelson's fleet and declared war on naples the neapolitans in fury at being dragged into such a needless conflict rose against their dear king and adored queen especially against their adored queen and threatened to kill them by lady hamilton's aid the royal family reached nelson's flagship and took refuge there from the mob sir william and lady hamilton went along the populace looted the british embassy and stole everything of value sir william owned about one hundred and ninety five thousand dollars worth of property in all thus hamilton was the third man who had lost a fortune through emma meanwhile nelson had sailed to palermo taking the fugitives along there he made his home with the hamiltons and scandal awoke even in that easy-going crowd nor did the scandal die down to any appreciable extent on the birth of lady hamilton's daughter horatia a year or so later sir william's conduct in the matter is still a puzzle he felt or professed to feel that there was no occasion for jealousy and so for a long time the trio shared the same house one of the courtiers who had fled with the king and queen to palermo was prince caraccioli nelson's close friend and lady hamilton's bitter enemy caraccioli asked leave to go back to naples to look after his endangered property as soon as he reached the city he threw in his lot with the rebels and was made admiral of their navy presently by the aid of england's fleet the royal family returned the rebellion was put down and the king and queen were once more seated firmly on their thrones the rebel leaders were seized and brought to trial nelson is said to have promised immunity to caraccioli if he would surrender relying on his friend's pledge caraccioli surrendered at emma's request 
Nelson had the over-trustful man hanged from the yardarm of his own flagship. This is the darkest smear on Nelson's character, a smear that even his most blatant admirers have never been able to wipe away. It is not in keeping with anything else in his life, but by this time he belonged to Lady Hamilton, body and soul. She, by the way, had managed to acquire from her friend, the Queen of Naples, a nice tendency toward bloodthirstiness, as witness the following sweet anecdote by Prynne Lockhart Gordon, who tells of dining with the Hamiltons at Palermo in company with a Turkish officer. In the course of conversation, the officer boasted that with the sword he wore, he had put to death a number of French prisoners. Look, he said, there is their blood remaining on it. When the speech was translated to her, Lady Hamilton's eyes beamed with delight. Oh, let me see the sword that did the glorious deed, she exclaimed. Taking the sword in her hands, which were covered with jewels, she looked at it, then kissed the encrusted blood on the blade, and passed it on to Nelson. Only one who was a witness to the spectacle can imagine how disgusting it was. Enshrined once more at Naples, hailed as savior of the realm, acclaimed for her share in the Nile victory, the confidant of royalty, it would be pleasant to say good-bye here to Emma Lyon, ex-nursemaid, ex-barmaid, ex-lady's maid, nameless offspring of a Lancashire inn slavey. It was the climax of a wonderful life, but there was anticlimax aplenty to follow. Nelson went home to England to receive the plaudits of his fellow countrymen and to settle accounts with his wife. Home, too, came the Hamiltons, Sir William having been recalled. Lady Nelson was not at the dock to meet her hero husband. Bad news travelled fast, even before we boosted it along by wire and then by wireless. Lady Nelson had heard, and Lady Nelson was waiting at home. Thither, blithely enough, fared the man in whose praise a million Englishmen were cheering themselves hoarse, and in whose silver-buckled shoes perhaps no married Englishman would just then have cared or dared to stand. But Nelson was a hero. He went home. I once had a collie puppy that had never chanced to be at close quarters with a cat. I was privileged to see him when he made his first gleefully fearless attack upon one, ignorant of the potential anguish tucked away behind a feline's velvety paws. Somehow, with no disrespect to a great man, I always think of that poor, about-to-be-disillusioned puppy when I try to visualize the picture of Nelson's homecoming. Just what happened, no one knows. But whatever it was, it did not teach Nelson the wisdom of husbandly reticence. For a few weeks later, he remarked at breakfast, I have just received another letter from dear Lady Hamilton. I am sick of hearing of dear Lady Hamilton, flared the long-suffering wife. You can choose between us. You must give up her or me. Take care, Fanny, warned Nelson. I love you dearly, but I cannot forget all I owe to dear Lady Hamilton. 
this is the end then announced lady nelson and she left the house only once again did she and her husband meet nelson cast off all pretense at concealment after his wife left him his affair with lady hamilton became public property their daughter horatia was openly acclaimed by him as his heiress the english were in a quandary they loved nelson they hated the woman who had dragged his name into the filth they could not snub her without making him unhappy they could not honor him without causing her to shine by reflected glory it was unpleasant all around in eighteen o five the deadlock was broken nelson was again to fight the french he told lady hamilton and many others that this campaign was to end in his death he ordered his coffin made ready for him then he sailed against the french fleet met it off cape trafalgar and annihilated it in the thick of the fight a musket ball gave him his death wound he was carried below and there the battle raging around him he laboriously wrote a codicil to his will entreating his king and country to repay his services by settling a pension on lady hamilton then to his next in command he panted i am going fast come nearer pray let my dear lady hamilton have my hair and all other things belonging to me take care of my dear lady hamilton poor lady hamilton thank god i have done my duty and so he died this knightly little demigod true lover false husband who had fouled his snowy escutcheon for a worthless woman now comes the inevitable anticlimax all england turned with loathing from lady hamilton her husband was dead lovers stood aloof folk who had received her for nelson's sake barred their doors against her she had followed the popular custom of living in luxury on nothing a year now her creditors swarmed upon her her house was sold for debt next she lived in bond street lodgings growing poorer day by day until she was condemned to the debtor's prison a kind-hearted or hopeful alderman bought her out of jail a former coachman of hers whose wages were still unpaid threatened her with arrest for debt she fled to calais there she lived in an attic saved from absolute starvation by a fellow englishwoman a mrs hunter her youth and charm had fled the power that had lured nelson and greville and hamilton to ruin was gone in eighteen fifteen she died she was buried in a pine box with an old black silk petticoat for a pall no clergyman could be found to take charge of her funeral so the burial service was read by a fellow debt exile a half-pay irish army captain one wonders perhaps morbidly if nelson's possible punishment in another world might not have been the knowledge of what befell his dear lady hamilton in her latter days End of chapter twelve recording by linda johnson
End of Superwomen by Albert Payson Terhune